there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. I say in the book, tongue in cheek, but it was true. I was the perfect researcher for this job because I was the office country girl. I stepped a layer deeper into a larger story by stepping into his community, which was anyone who knows Warren will know that Warren's not that different to Wee War, which is not that different to Mudgee, which is not that different to Golgong, you know? Rights for Festivals proudly presents... The Mudgy Readers Festival. This session is Waiting for Elijah with Kate Wilde. Supported by Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales. Produced by Kel Butler and Pamela Cook from the Rights for Women podcast. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Wiradjuri people who are the traditional owners of the land. And I'd like to pay respects to Elders, both past and present, of the Wiradjuri Nation and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians. My name is Sherelle Fellows and it is my great privilege today to talk to you with Kate Wilde about this very important book. It's being described as compelling and a brave book and I would really agree with those reviews, but I'd also say that it is a plea for compassion and understanding, and that's really what I took away from the book. Kate grew up in country New South Wales. She hasn't quite told me where. She's kept that quiet. Warren. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she was educated at CSU and studies in journalism and communications. And Kate has had an extremely distinguished career working for the ABC for a very long time, particularly for Four Corners, that great program that has led to so many groundbreaking stories in the national interest and so highly respected. And Kate was very instrumental in a number of those stories, particularly her work in Darwin where it was her groundwork who really, you know, really did establish the whole notion of juvenile detention and it was her work that probably resulted in that Four Corners show that led to a Royal Commission into juvenile detention. So Kate's a great advocate for social justice and is an admirable, balanced book. Waiting for Elijah, this is her first actual book, is the result of a very long investigation. But, you know, we have to acknowledge, aside from that Royal Commission, Kate is also the recipient of three Walkley Awards for journalism and a Logie for her work in television. So, and at the moment, Kate is working, she no longer works for the ABC, which I think is a tragedy, (laughs) Uh, but she is currently working as a freelance journalist and I would have to say that probably the last six to seven years she's been pretty well consumed with the research and the writing of this very important book. For those of you who are not aware of what happened, Elijah Holcomb was a young 24-year-old university student who was shot dead by police by one man 
Andrew Rich in an Armadale Lane, Cinders Lane in Armadale in June in 2009. The policeman at the time claimed that he had no choice, that Elijah was armed with a knife, which was actually a bread knife, but that Elijah charged at him and he had no choice but to shoot him dead. And Kate acknowledges that in her book, the Armadale Express, the local paper, the headline, I think the day after his death was something like armed man, you know, crazy armed man shot dead. And the next day, the Armadale Express headline was very different. It was tragic waste of life. So, Kate, how did you first become involved in this story? Um, I became involved in Elijah's story at a very uh, crucial point in my own life. It was the last story that I uh, worked on before I left Four Corners to go on maternity leave to have my daughter. Um, A a wonderful uh, reporter at Four Corners, Quentin McDermott, um, who's worked there for a very long time, had noticed a spate of fatal police shootings in the previous 12 months, all of which involved people who appeared to have been mentally ill or mentally disturbed at the time they were shot. Elijah's shooting had happened on the 2nd of July, so it was only a few months prior. It was the most recent of uh, what seemed to be a pattern and Quentin asked the question, were these people fatally shot because they were very dangerous in that moment or were they shot partly because assumptions were made about the level of the danger they posed because they were mentally ill? And that was the question that we set out to answer. So Four Corners teams work in three, in a three. You've got a reporter, a producer and a researcher. So you're basically a team of three journalists and that's how they get such amazing work done is that they put so many people on a story. As a researcher, my job was to build relationships with the people that we wanted to interview and effectively convince them to come on the program if that was what they helped them get a, beyond their fear of coming on the show. I say in the book, tongue-in-cheek, but it was true, I was the perfect researcher for this job because I was the office country girl and Elijah's family were country people and so I would therefore know how to speak country and get these people to want to come on the show. And I'm sure you all know if you've spoken to journalists what it's like to be talked country at. So I gladly took that job on to hopefully save the Holcombs from being patronised. Um and it was it was easy to build a relationship with them and, and talk to them because I immediately recognised the Holcombs. Yes, and I think the other interesting thing, Kate, is that the Holcombs, they refused to condemn the police. They refused to be vengeful and, and angry about it. They said it was a, a tragedy, a system failure and so many things had obviously gone wrong. And after that Armadale Express report, they refused to comment any further and join the media frenzy. And I was speaking to a young woman who actually grew up in, in Narrabri, where the Holcombs come from, and, and she said that the people in that community have the utmost respect for the way, the dignity that they held themselves through that. But you got to know them really well, didn't you? I did, and and one of the reasons I was drawn to Elijah's story, so there are many reasons, but one of the reasons I was so deeply drawn to Elijah and the Holcomb story was because of the Holcomb family themselves and what a remarkable family they are. They didn't fall prey to their anger and their hurt by turning to look for revenge against the police officer or the police force. They were very genuine in their belief that although they didn't think Elijah needed to be shot and he had not posed a danger to anyone, 
that they were determined that the police officer who had killed Elijah not be scapegoated. Jeremy said to me from the very beginning, there were lots of things that let Elijah down and that was just one of them. And they held to that for for the, they still hold to that, but they held to that through five years of very distressing and difficult and frustrating legal processes. And that dignity and that grace and that deep belief in the power of compassion and understanding to take us further than revenge and anger, I think is something that I learned an enormous amount from and was deeply drawn to. Yes. And I mean, the nature of Jeremy's illness itself, and there have been a number of police shootings, as you said at the outset, of mentally ill mentally ill people, but um, he never had a history of violence or anything, had he, Kate? Can can you tell us exactly what you understand from the family about the nature of his illness? So so Elijah's first experience of of mental illness was when he was in about year 10 or 11. He became depressed. He told his parents, who were very open and very, um, went and sought help for him immediately. They didn't sort of push it to the side and ignore it. They went and found help for Elijah. He was medicated. He went and saw a psychologist for um, for a year. He recovered. He stopped taking medication. He went to university a couple of years later in Sydney. Um, he married quite young, married a, a young woman he met at university. And as many of us did at university, he was drinking pretty heavily at, on, at parties, had a big drinking binge, And that seemed to trigger um, a shift in his brain chemistry and he became, he developed a paranoid delusion that his wife uh, wanted to have him killed um, and that first of all he thought the Turkish mafia were part of it because he had a Turkish flatmate and he was convinced his flatmate was part of the mafia. That developed over time into a belief that it wasn't the Turkish mafia but it was the police who were going to kill him, shoot him. He told his mother one day, she, he was, Elijah was smoking and his mother and sister said to him, you know, you've got to stop smoking, it's going to kill you. And he just turned to them and said, oh, no, no, smoking's not going to kill me, mum. A police officer's going to shoot me. Um, which still that prophetic kind of gives me the shivers a bit. Um, so Elijah was diagnosed with schizophreniform disorder, which I came to understand through my research is the diagnosis that a person is given if they have a certain set of um, symptoms which include delusions, paranoid thoughts, a variety of things. If those symptoms persist for six months, the diagnosis automatically flips over into schizophrenia. Elijah was never officially diagnosed with schizophrenia but his symptoms did last that long. So my understanding, although I'm not a psychiatrist, is that he, he, he had schizophrenia or was developing that. So, Kate, how did he – he was shot in Armadale and I think he'd actually gone home. His parents had had gone and retrieved him and they were taking him home to sort of safety, really, Mm. because um, he'd rung them and said he was being afraid of being shot by the police and they thought, well, we'll just take you home and Mm. and get you some treatment. So how did he end up in that situation in Armadale? it was a typical um, cascade of events which it, I've covered quite a few coronial inquests over the years and often deaths that end up in the coroner's court, you will you will find that there is this sort of domino effect of if any one of these things hadn't happened, perhaps the death might not have happened. But with Elijah, he and his wife um, decided to separate. 
anyone who's who's familiar with with mental illness will know that some that, that often a very traumatic event like that will really tip people over the edge will really deepen someone's distress that really did deepen Elijah's distress he called and asked his father to come and help him move out of the flat by the time his father arrived Elijah was quite delusional again but his family took him home to Narrabri to recover and Elijah that weekend uh, self-harmed he sort of cut his his wrists um, Jeremy, Elijah's father, is is quite certain that it was um, Elijah wasn't actually trying to kill himself, but it was part of this delusion that he had to look like he was hurting himself because that was part of the the conspiracy to protect himself. Um, they took him to the hospital to get stitches and to get back on his medication. The doctor said, "Come back on Monday." This was a Sunday. Come back on Monday, and we'll get you back on your medication properly. Elijah's father took stopped at the post office to post some letters and pay some bills, left Elijah in the car with the keys in the ignition so that Elijah could listen to the radio and his dad was in the post office for longer than he expected to be. He looked out the window and saw Elijah driving off. Elijah didn't even have a driver's licence. Long story slightly shorter, Elijah drove to Armadale three hours away, slept in the car overnight and then despite his fear of police, obviously had a moment of lucidity and handed himself into the Armadale Police Station the next morning, said, I'm not well, can you take me to the hospital? Which the police did and they did a wonderful job of sort of taking him to the hospital. Elijah knew the mental health system quite well by now because he'd been receiving treatment for a number of years and um, he got partway through his assessment and obviously freaked out again and said, am I a voluntary or involuntary patient? He was told he was a voluntary patient and he said, well, then I'm leaving. And he walked out. The police officer who had, Andrew Rich, who had actually been asked to find the car that Elijah had dumped somewhere in town and couldn't find the car, took it upon himself to go to the hospital and ask Elijah where it was. Pretty commonsensical, pragmatic thing to do. When he arrived in plain clothes, when he arrived at the hospital, the nursing staff said to him, we're really worried about this kid. Um, If you find him, can you bring him back? Andrew Rich then took it upon himself to find Elijah. He found him in the street. He hadn't been told anything about Elijah's delusions at this point, so he didn't know Elijah was terrified that he was going to be shot by a police officer. He was in plain clothes, but he had a gun clearly visible on his hip. He approached Elijah in the street and said, mate, I've got your car keys. Um, Elijah didn't want to go with him. Uh, You've got to come back to the hospital. Come back to the hospital with me. I don't want to come back to the hospital with you. Mate, I'm a police officer, you've got to do what I say. Elijah ran and unfortunately Andrew chased him. And in a lot of ways I think that's that was the deciding moment where things really took a bad turn because Elijah believed he was, I, I imagine, Elijah believed he was being chased by a man who wanted to kill him. He ran through a cafe, picked up a bread knife that was still covered in cheese and avocado and walked out the back door of the cafe. The police officer followed him called on him to drop the knife a number of times. Elijah didn't. And then there are 16 eyewitnesses who all tell varied stories of what happened next. There was a CCTV camera in the laneway which was on an automated 60-second circuit. It followed events up until the last 50 seconds and then it changed directions and so it didn't capture anything of what happened in the final crucial moment of the confrontation. So what actually happened in that moment, we don't, really know. Um, 
And we, we certainly don't because, as Kate alluded to, it was a subject to basically six years of uh, legal proceedings and quite complex legal proceedings. But And there was such conflicting evidence which... Uh, if you haven't, Kate actually does forensically look at all that evidence and evaluate it herself and uh, goes to at great lengths to read court transcripts and, and take from that. Um, just trying to get to the truth, trying to explain what happened, how can this happen, how can we stop it happening to someone else again. But, but Kate... Originally, you, with contact with the Holcomb family, you had great faith that the original coronial inquest would get to the bottom. It would get to the truth. You were quite, and so was the Holcomb family. Um, what what happened in that in that process that actually didn't get the result that everybody was hoping for? Some explanation. Um, the first coronial inquest into Elijah's death, so it was compulsory to have a coronial inquest because a police officer had been involved in the death. Under New South Wales law, that has to happen. Um, it seemed clear to me on the face value of the people I'd spoken to for the Four Corners story that it had been a terrible mistake, that the police officer had possibly overreacted and I felt certain that that would all be sort of dealt with quite quickly in the first coronial the coroner heard a lot of evidence and after 10 days of evidence um, suspended the coronial inquest and referred it to the to the Director of Public Prosecutions with the belief that possibly a criminal offence had been committed in shooting Elijah. You know, it's then up to the DPP to look at the evidence and decide whether or not a jury was likely to back that, to say, yes, there's enough evidence here to say that Elijah should never have been shot and it was an overreaction. The DPP took almost two years to come to that decision, which every person in the legal profession that I've spoken to since has said is, is utterly shameful and it should never have taken that long because everyone is innocent until proven guilty and the amount of pressure that that length of time put on not only the Holcomb family but on Andrew having sitting over his head the idea that he may go to jail for, for doing what he believed was protecting the community and doing his job. And to have to live with that for two years had an enormous impact on, on Andrew's mental health and on the physical and mental health of the Holcombs and many other people around them. The DPP decided in the end not to charge Andrew, that there wasn't enough evidence that a jury could come to a clear decision either way. So the coronial inquest was reopened and um, everybody waited for Andrew to give his evidence to, to tell his side of the story of what had happened because... I don't believe for a moment and I and I hope other people through reading the book if they do believe that police use fatal force easily, I hope they understand by the end of my book that that is just not the case. I really don't believe that anyone pulls a gun on another person and uses it lightly um, and I don't believe Andrew did either. And so I was as desperate as everybody else to hear Andrew's side of the story. What What was it in that moment that led him to believe he or someone else was in such danger that he needed to do that? But that became the next challenge. After waiting two years for the DPP to come to a decision, there was then another three years of legal process of trying to get Andrew to give evidence because he refused to. And that was, that was an enormous challenge. And he refused to on the advice of his legal team. Really, he did. I, there's mm. a, the number of times that uh, Kate had emailed him, tried to contact him through colleagues, tried to uh, just drop, turned up blind just at the turned up blind in Armitage, <laughs> uh, and and wrote repeatedly saying, "Look, I really want your side of the story to be fair and to be balanced." 
um, and you had some colleagues explaining to you that he, it was his legal advice, his, mm. his right to silence that, um, you know, from the police association as well to not speak and not give his side of the story, which, 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 which did persist. But, but during this time, Kate, uh, you know, after the, that, that two-year period where the Holcombs were actually waiting to see what would happen and you were ringing the DPP's office every week saying, what's happening? It's Kate Wilde here, you know. Um, can you tell me when a decision will be made? During that time, Jeremy's mother, Tracy, actually passed... Elijah's mother. Elijah's mm-hmm. mother. Sorry, Elijah's mother, Tracy, actually passed away, didn't she? Mm-hmm. And, and you went to the funeral, which was the first time you'd had face-to-face mm. contact. Uh, tell us about that. So I I don't think this is as difficult for country people to understand as it might be for city people, but um, I had developed a really close relationship with the Holcombs purely over the phone. I don't think that's a big stretch for people who live at a distance from each other to understand, um, so I don't f- feel like I need to necessarily explain that much more to anyone here, but... Going to Tracy's funeral, Elijah's mother's funeral, two years after I first covered the story, was the first time that I met. I had met Tracy in person because she had been she had developed cancer quite soon after Elijah's shooting, and she'd been to Sydney for treatment. So I'd met her a couple of times, but I hadn't met Jeremy or his new partner, Fiona, until I went to Tracy's funeral. And I went to Wee War. My mum and dad came with me to look after my then two-year-old daughter who'd been born a couple of weeks after Elijah's story first went to air. And I went to the church where Elijah had been buried and I watched his mother be buried in the plot next to him in Wee War. And I met the Holcombs and I met the community. And yeah, I just, I guess I, I stepped a layer deeper into Elijah's story by stepping into his community, which was Anyone who knows Warren will know that Warren's not that different to Wee War, which is not that different to Mudgee, which is not that different to Golgong, you know. It's a culture and a pace and a style of community that I I know in my bones. Yeah. And um, should point out that, you know, Kate coming back uh, through all these inquiries and court cases, uh, she was living in Darwin at the time and so there was this packing up a a baby girl and sometimes husband, not always, and doing all these trips back to Sydney and and just this relentless pursuit really um, because this was a time she was working in Darwin and doing all this other investigative journalism. But you decided and it was just you and your daughter at the time, you decided, uh, Kate, after the funeral that you would go to Armadale and actually have a look and I'd really love it if you could read a little from the book because even though this work is non-fiction, it's got a tremendous narrative drive and it's beautifully written and Kate often takes us into the perspectives of the characters she's writing about really well but I'd love it if you could read this bit. Um, so just as a bit of an introduction, after after going to the funeral, after going to Tracy's funeral, I then um, sort of put my investigative journalist hat back on and thought I have to do what a, what a good journalist does and I've got to walk the streets where this happened and try and get my own sense of what was going on, my own sense of the, the scale and perspective of what was happening. And I did this with my then two-year-old daughter, Stella, in tow, being pushed in front of me in a pram, the poor thing. I buckled Stella into the bright blue Commodore and waved goodbye to the cotton fields motel. 
My father's tattered map lay on the seat beside me, too worn to follow, but I had found a use for it. Two open-faced men in their 20s or 30s greeted me at the counter of the Narrabri police station. I unfolded the map and asked for directions. I was on my way to Armadale, I explained. Together we pulled over various routes, comparing road conditions. A female officer joined the conversation. They were helpful and patient, young and strong and happy to repeat instructions which I scribbled in the margins of the map. They were sure I would reach Armadale in four hours if I went over the ranges. One of them might have been Brett Allison. They could all have known the Holcombs. But no one was wearing a name badge and I didn't ask. I went because I wanted the police to be people in my mind, even if these weren't the right people. I wanted faces and voices in my head and to know with my own senses that if I came to them in distress, they would help. They would. I wrapped my daughter's pudgy legs around my hip, thanked the Narrabri police for their help and left. The Commodore growled up the Nandawar range under the grey clouds of a cold snap. Lichen-spattered boulders turned their backs against the rain. I burrowed with them, hunkering deeper as I drove. Armadale was bleak and prosperous. The cold had metal teeth. I drove the streets in search of the places that marked Elijah's last day. Trim Street by the nursing home where he slept the night in Jeremy's car. The hospital, the police station, the camping store and Caffeine's Cafe. Then Cinder's Lane where everything had ended. Trim Street was ugly. The trees were as bare as the day Elijah had parked here. I knew this from photos in the brief. The nature strip was nude and the light brick townhouses had aluminium attic windows peeping from their roofs like periscopes. It was a poor place to hide and a bleak place to rest, whichever Elijah had meant to do. No canopy of trees or ramshackle gardens to look at, no sounds of a creek or playground nearby. Anything out of place would have screamed its presence. I pictured Elijah hiding, waiting for the street to clear before he stepped out of his father's car. The ground wet with dew, his breath visible in the air. I swung the car around and followed Elijah into town. The window of the camping store was filled with one-man tents and Gore-Tex mannequins. Rich offered Elijah the car keys here. The parking inspector said Elijah refused them and Rich chuckled to himself and called out, I'm an undercover cop, mate. You're obliged to stop. Willow Greaves rode his pushbike along this footpath. He almost leapt off his bike onto Elijah. He almost broke the thread, but he changed his mind. It took two minutes, walking slowly, to cross from the camping store to the muffler shop across the road, around the corner and into Beardy Street Mall, the path Elijah and Richard taken. Running at the speed they had, it would take less than a minute. From the camping store to Caffeine's and through to Cinder's Lane was three sides of the same block, no more than 500 metres, I guessed. I timed the walk twice, unable to comprehend how things had escalated so quickly in such a short time. Caffeine's was run of the mill for a large country town, the sort of place uni students ate wedges with sour cream and waited tables on the weekend. I pushed Sellers Pram past the outdoor tables and through the automatic doors. The cafe was two-thirds full on the day Elijah and Rich ran through, but today it was almost empty. Pine kitchen tables and chairs formed a clear corridor to the kitchen. I think everyone's getting a sense of how wonderful that writing is, aren't you? You, We really are there in Armadale. And yesterday when I met Kate, I said to her that that phrase, Armadale 
bleak and prosperous really, really just captured Armadale so perfectly. And this morning I was smiling to myself driving in and thinking, yes, well, I think we've somehow conjured Armadale weather today <laughs> to, to talk about this book. You know, the, the cold has steel, steel teeth today as well. But just to go back to that cascading events, Kate, um, there, there's another, I think, you know, almost terribly tragic element to this story in that the Holcomb family had told the police very clearly, hadn't they, that please don't approach Elijah. He's terrified of police. And the other thing they had told the police was if they did find Elijah, to ring his mother, not not his father, Jeremy, because he was travelling to where he thought uh, Elijah would be, but, but somehow there was that tragic miscommunication um, and that message never got through and that was the terrible, a terrible thing, wasn't it? So one of the mistakes that happened was um, Elijah's family were quite reluctant to contact the police when he met missing because they knew Elijah was frightened of the police and so they didn't think bringing the cops in was going to make anything better. But when they couldn't find him anywhere after a couple of hours, they decided they didn't have much choice. So they reported Elijah missing at the Narrabri police station and were very clear with them, this is the nature of his delusion, he's terrified of police. If you approach him, he will run away, which is what happened. And the police took very detailed notes about the nature of Elijah's fears and what any officer who came across him should do. But, and one of those was to call his mother. For some reason that didn't ever happen. I don't know why. Um, I don't know why the police in Armadale and the police in Narrabri didn't try to contact Elijah's mother when he turned up. Um, They did leave messages on his father's phone at home a number of times and actually Elijah's father returned home the day after he had been told Elijah was shot to messages on the answering machine from the Narrabri and the Armadale police saying, your son has just walked into the station, he's fine, we're taking him to the hospital. Um, it's very easy, I think, when you're looking at tragedies like this to try and find someone in the story to blame, to say, well, if that thing hadn't happened, everything would have been all right. But there are so many points along the way in that last day of Elijah's life where something could have happened a little bit differently. Perhaps the nurses or the doctor at the hospital could have asked Elijah what his mum or dad's phone number was and called them as the next of kin. That would have been a perfectly human, legal, normal thing to do. It didn't occur to anyone there to do that. There were three people who came across Elijah that day when one man who, a pensioner who noticed Elijah curled up on the back seat of his dad's car asleep in in Trim Street peered in through the window, saw Elijah crying on the back seat and thought when he got home, I'll call the police when I get home and let them know there's a guy who's not very well or there's something up with him. But when he got home, he changed his mind. He thought, it's none of my business, I'll leave it alone. If that had happened, that could have changed changed events. There was Willow Greaves, who I talk about here, who who rode his, his push bike past Elijah and Andrew Rich when they were in that confrontation on the outside the camping store he had this urge to jump off his bike and tackle Elijah to help the police because he knew there was something going on, but he changed his mind and thought, I won't, I won't interfere. There was an, another woman much closer to the crucial moment who was, who was backing her car out of the car park where Elijah and Andrew were, were facing each other, one with a knife, one with a gun, 
and she describes wanting to lean on her horn to break the moment outside the windscreen. But instead she reached for her mobile phone and pre-dialed triple O, triple zero, waiting for the moment to call the police. There were so many moments there where something else could have happened that could have broken the moment for Andrew and for Elijah. And I think that's, that's a lesson to take away with people in psychiatric crisis and even before people reach that point of psychiatric crisis where they might end up confronting a police officer is sometimes just reaching out, just breaking that moment, just a hand on the shoulder or a can I help you or a just a moment of human connection can be the thing that breaks, it's no guarantee, but it can be the thing that breaks that moment of crisis. Yes, and I know that, and we'll get to that a bit later, Kate, you, you know, after the the final findings, which we'll also talk about, that you did actually a lot of work with the police. You went to some of their training sessions because it's quite true, isn't it, that Andrew Rich had had one hour's training on how to deal with someone in a mental health crisis, which was not unusual at the time, and, and, and we'll get to that later of how that situation has changed, and I know that Kate was... Well, I'd like to think she was instrumental in that because she kept emailing all these police associations and saying, when is this going to change, you know? When, when are we going to actually address this? Um, but, look, there's a, a wider issue here of, of how we regard mental health as a society. And I know that in, in, in Kate's effort to understand Elijah, she actually spoke to a forensic psychiatrist who said, look, we have a mental health system in crisis in this country. And that was part of those that chain of events that somehow that system failed. But Kate, you did a very brave thing in this book, I think. As you were struggling with Elijah's story, I think you said at one point, you felt the dark spores start to spread Do you want to tell us about that, Kate? So I've also had periods of very serious depression throughout my life. I didn't know that's what it was until I I think the first time I was sort of even semi-diagnosed with it was probably when I was 28 or 29. But I can look back over my own history now and say that my first episode of mental illness was about the same age as Elijah when I was around 15 or 16. I can look back now and realise that I was very depressed. And I experienced the most serious episode of depression that I've had yet. Um, It lasted for about two years and it happened while I was writing Elijah's story. And for me that is is sort of how it feels when it starts to come on. It is like like a fungus, like a like a mould that grows on a wall. You, you just feel the first little spots of darkness and then they start to spread and they get bigger and it's almost like a rash that no one can see on your body just getting bigger and, and taking over more of your emotional world. And so I was battling, managing, living with my own um, depression while I was writing Elijah's story And I made the decision to include that in the book because, um, well, for lots of different reasons. First of all, I thought it was really important that a reader reading the story knew that I had a lived experience of it because I think I certainly as a reader like to know what, why someone is writing a story, a non-fiction story. And I also want people to be able to know that that's the prism I'm writing through so that they can adjust their reading of it to that. Perhaps I'm being biased, perhaps I'm not, but at least you know that's how, where I'm writing from. But also because I think it's very easy to 
dismiss someone as soon as you know that there's a mental illness involved, okay, we'll, we'll disregard the validity of what they're saying or the depth or the truth or the whatever. There are many people in Elijah's story who have experienced mental illness, who manage a mental illness, including barristers, magistrates, um, police officers, myself, the person writing the book. And I also wanted to really make the point that it's a part of life. It's something that exists alongside everything else, alongside your PhD, alongside your motherhood, alongside being a firefighter. It's just another part of the picture and it doesn't stop you from writing a book or standing up in court and representing people. It doesn't stop you from doing anything else. It's just another thing to get through while you do those other things. Yes, and, I, you know, I found reading the book was a revelation about you personally, a revelation about the legal system, um, and I felt that it was very convenient that you had a husband as a lawyer to interpret it's all that very law. convenient. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and also a revelation about the mental health system and the silence that surrounds it and the stigma. I doubt that there is a person in this room who doesn't, who hasn't been touched by knowing of someone with mental illness, either within their immediate family or their circle of their friends or in their, in their wider community. And I clearly remember in your book that I think it's, um, it's actually the senior policeman who's doing the training, mm. isn't it, who I think it's him who reveals that according to the World Health Organisation, at the moment, depression is now the, the leading cause of disability in the world, mm. which is a staggering statistic mm. if we're going to remain silent about it. Mm. And I think that silence is part of the disability. I think if, if it was less stigmatised, um, if we felt more able to speak about it, and that doesn't mean sitting up here on a stage like I am and telling you all that I've had depression for two years, that doesn't have to be what speaking about mental illness is like. It can just be acknowledging it to one or two people in your life who you trust that that's what's going on for you so that you don't have to feel like you're carrying it around like a shameful secret. Um, and I think the shame that comes along with mental illness is is what makes a disability out of it when it needn't be. That's right. And, and this very senior policeman who's actually in charge of training uh, the police at the end and, and now they receive far more training... Mm. Um, which I'm, again, I think is thanks to you, Kate. Um, I, don't, I don't know that that's, <laughs> that's fair. Um, well, I think it is. And he reveals for the first time, doesn't he, that he himself has suffered after he was in Bali during the bombings and has suffered post-traumatic stress disorder. And he reveals this publicly and he actually says, no one should be ashamed and no one is immune. Mm. And he reveals that to the young men that he's training, et cetera. And that's a very powerful moment, I think, in the book. And then you reveal to other people as well, don't mm. you? So the idea, so the, the man that um, that Cheryl's talking about is Joel Murchie, who's a, um, an absolutely incredible police officer, New South Wales police officer. He's just very recently retired. He was actually, happened to be in the Sari Club in Bali when the Bali bomb went off and he's six foot three and his nose was blown off his face amongst other things. Um, so he, his post-traumatic stress was enormous. Um, but he, he sought help, he got looked after and he came back to the police force and was 
instrumental in setting up the mental health um, intervention team, which is a unit within the New South Wales Police that now teaches police officers how to deal with someone in psychiatric crisis. I mean, he teaches those courses. And and he does say, you know, no one's immune. And, he, and you know, if you, if you talk to police about some of the stuff they do, I just don't understand how there could be a single police officer who doesn't manage ment- their, a mental illness of some description. Um, I, we, I had police officers in that course describe having to having been at the Hilton bombing a very long time ago and as, pro- as a probationary constable, so you're in your first 12 or 18 months on the job, having to go with a garbage bag onto the awnings of the Queen Victoria building and collect body parts in a plastic bag with your bare hands. I mean, if that is not going to cause some sort of mental distress for you immediately or later in your life, I don't know what is. So this idea that that anyone is immune, this idea that someone who has a mental health issue is is over there, is someone else, is other, is just a complete fallacy. It can touch all of us. Exactly. At any moment. Exactly. And and when you were saying about, you know, not necessarily sitting on stage, I remember um, there's a comment from Tracy, uh, you know, Elijah's mother, who says that she supported both Jeremy, the father, through mental illness and her son. And there were times when she was at nights in hospital when they were both in hospital and she was worried about the kids at home. And then she'd go home and other people in the community who were too afraid to say it would ring her and ask for advice for people in their own Mm. families who were struggling. And she said she felt like a bit of a boy in the sea for Mm. people to turn to 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 help Mm. uh, because there was, they were too ashamed or there was no other help in in rural areas. So it's very and I powerful. Think, and I think that's um I think that's a really big part of the story in in non-metropolitan areas is that there's just really nowhere to turn to in country areas. And I know that firsthand, but I think that's one of the one of the great difficulties. I write a lot in this book about the silence around mental illness, particularly in country areas, because that's what I've experienced in my own family, is this great taboo about even saying the word and it must not be spoken and it must not be acknowledged. Um and I think that that is a great – that's just a terrible thing. There, there shouldn't be a silence about it. But one of the explanations for that silence is that who do you tell in a country area? Where is there to go? I remember sitting on the phone at 28 trying to find help and calling around places, looking for somewhere for a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And the people on the other end of the phone who I spoke to were so exhausted they couldn't even – gather the energy to sound like they cared (laughs) because they had such long waiting lists and there were people in so much more desperate need than me. And I think that is, um, that's a systems failure. That's a resourcing failure. Um, And I do believe that the stigma around mental illness is, is part of the reason that mental health is poorly resourced because while ever we're willing to not talk about it and not speak up and say that there's a need there and that we need help, then there's not enough noise being made around getting those resources. And so we do have to speak up about it and we do have to demand help. Um, And if the help, the professional help's not there, then we do need to reach out and speak to someone we trust, a friend or a family member or maybe not a family member. I couldn't ever speak to a family member about it in my own family. So I recognise that it's not always going to be family, but there has to be someone you can find to tell so that you don't reach a crisis point like Elijah did. Yes. And, and Kate, just to, to 
ask about, you know, that, you know, your decision to be so brave. But um, really curious about how someone who's been used to reporting in a very short form, how you then, because this is Kate's first book, um, what mentors or what inspirations to, to give the book the narrative drive, you know, to turn from a very short form of journalism into, into something that, that is such a detailed and wonderful book, what were the challenges in, in doing that? Because it occupied a huge mm. amount of your life. Mm. Um, it was an enormous challenge because writing a book is a completely different thing to writing journalism. You know, you've got to get a whole story into 300 words usually and this is 120,000. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, I did a lot of reading. I read a lot of authors whose work I really liked. Helen Garner's Joe Chinque's Consolation was sort of my Bible while I wrote this. Helen had, um, had faced a lot of the same challenges with the legal system and the narrative storytelling that I faced. And so I used her, she'd sort of solved a lot of those problems before me. So I just cheated and copied some of what Helen had done in some places. I read a lot of books about writing books and... And I took a really long time to write it and I wrote it not knowing whether or not I would succeed. I wrote it not knowing whether or not I could write a book. But um, I just used to keep telling myself that lots of people have written books before me and none of them knew how to do it either and I would just keep going until I figured it out. <laughs> Which obviously has been very successful. <laughs> um, and, and Kate, the, the title... Mm. Waiting for Elijah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, thank you for asking because it's one of my favourite questions. <laughs> um, so Elijah is an unusual name, right? This, I don't know that many Elijahs. Um, it's, a, it's an Old Testament name and I was very taken when immediately sort of curious about why Elijah's parents would have chosen that name. Their reasons for choosing it were not at all romantic um, they were big uh, – Tracy was a big Sher fan and I think her, their, her son was Elijah Blue or Elijah J or something. So that was why they chose the name, which was not at all useful for my purposes. <laughs> so <laughs> I went Googling around and, um, and discovered that Elijah um, is actually a very important prophet both in, in Islam, in Christianity and in Judaism. He's a very central figure, a very important person. But particularly in Judaism, Elijah is a prophet at Passover, which is a very important festival for Jewish people. They leave the front door open for it's a big feast night when the when Jewish people have escaped from the desert and escaped persecution. They leave the front door open in case Elijah comes because they believe that one day Elijah the prophet will come through the door and they leave a place set for him at the table. And the job of the prophet Elijah is to answer the questions that no one else can answer. So there is this saying that the rabbis, when someone comes to them with a religious or a moral question that they don't know the answer to and even the rabbis can't answer it, they say, we will put it aside until Elijah comes. And the hope is that one day Elijah will walk through the door and give us the answer to all of those questions that we just cannot answer by ourselves. As it happened... I mean, that was enough for me. That was enough for a title. But as it happened, on one of the coronial hearings for Elijah's case, it was Passover and a Jewish friend of mine invited me to a Passover dinner and I went to this house and the door was open and there was an empty place. (laughs) 
that was a very powerful moment in the book as well, Kate, wasn't it? You, you, was there ever a point where the, with the frustration with the legal system and the toll this was taking on your own health where you just thought, I can't do this anymore, I, I want to give up or not really? Just even a fleeting sense? There were plenty of moments where I wanted to give up on it, where I wanted to just throw it away and make it go away. But... Um, it was never going to go away. Even if I gave up on it, it was never going to go away. And I very deliberately set out when I decided to write this book to make sure that I would finish it. So I told everybody I knew that I was writing a book and what it was about (laughs) so that I would then be shamed into finishing it. Um, I had then also spent so much time on the story. By the time I was two years in, like there's no going back once you've spent that much of your life on something. And also it would never leave me, I knew it would never leave me alone. This story came to me for a particular reason. I really do believe that. And if I'd given up on it, I would have been giving up on myself as well. So it was just not a choice. Yes. As much as I wanted to make it. And even, uh, you know, even after the, I think, two days before publication or something like that, Kate was still writing to Andrew Rich pleading for his side of the story. Uh, Look, I'd really like to hand over for questions. I'm sure there's going to be questions in the audience uh, about this amazing book and it really is an amazing book. So I'll try and be quiet and if anyone would like to ask questions of Kate, I think Terry, has anyone got a mic there? Terry's got a mic so please don't be shy. Um, Please don't be silent. Uh, Please ask questions of Kate. Has the New South Wales Police Department bought a great big swag of your books for their education? I don't know, although I do know a couple of police officers have bought the book. So let's wait and see what happens once they've read it. But um, like in any culture or in any any sort of profession, there are, there are camps within the New South Wales Police. There are police officers who are absolutely dedicated to taking care of people who, who they come across in mental crisis and are absolutely wonderful at it. And there are, other, there are other police who just don't want to go anywhere near it and think it's not part of their job. And I have met some incredibly wonderful, compassionate, dedicated police officers who I would trust with my life, who are doing everything they can to make that attitude part of every police officer's attitude. So let's see. (laughs) I've been involved in another system for 34 years as a primary school teacher. I too got depression and had to leave. But I found my passion for writing when I left was the most wonderful therapy and I just wonder if you too found writing that book a great therapy for yourself. Um, that's a lovely question. Yes, I have. Um, I think writing Elijah's story is absolutely what brought me out of my depression and what helped me work my way through it. It didn't make the writing easy. It was painful a lot of the time. Um, but uh, but what I learned about myself and about mental illness and the way that people like the Holcombs have dealt with it with such incredible grace and and fortitude um, has rearranged my insides and has given me a strength and a self-confidence that I didn't have before. And that's why I enjoy being able to talk about this because I hope that my willingness to be vulnerable and talk about that will let other people feel that it's okay as well. And I hope that in my next episode of depression, which I'm sure will happen, there's no hiding from it, there's no escaping it, it will happen at some point, but I hope that the strength I've gained from this 
will stay with me through the next episode when it comes. And I hope it will for you too. <laughs> and, and, you know, Kate, just to, um, to go back to this on a not, – not a lighter note, but I, I remember when you were in Darwin at one point as well, you decide that you're going to show the compassion and the understanding that at that stage, early on in the book, you think was lacking in the way the police dealt with possibly deranged people and you decide that you're going to um, – there's a, there's a man in his underwear or something in the streets of Darwin quite deranged and people are looking on. So you make a pretty brave call there. Tell us what happened. Well, I decided I had to try and walk the walk if I was – I had to try and do what I was expecting police to do. So I'd spoken to all of these different experts of all different stripes about what one should do when they came across a person who was in psychiatric crisis. And the – unarmed, okay, so I'm not suggesting this is something you do when someone is clearly dangerous, but when you come across someone who's distressed and in psychological distress, what was the best thing you could do to de-escalate the situation for them and everyone else? And the advice I was always given was to make human contact, to speak to someone, to ask them questions, not too many, but to engage them somehow. And I thought, if this is what I expect of police and they're as untrained as I am, I've got to give it a go as well. I was driving to work to the ABC in Darwin. The traffic was jammed up. There was a young guy in his boxer shorts running around in the traffic, banging on bonnets, screaming, stopping the traffic from going forward. So I pulled over made sure that someone had already called the police and I walked out into the street, into the, onto the road to try and talk to this guy. Hi, my name's Kate. Are you okay? Is there someone I can call for you? He was very drunk. He was obviously delusional. He was covered in sweat. His eyes were sort of half rolling back in his head. He was talking to someone who wasn't there. It was frightening. It was really frightening to come up that close to someone in that state. He engaged with me briefly, momentarily, long enough to become quite lewd towards me and, oh, I'll have a piece of you and you look a bit nice and sort of coming towards me to touch me. It was really frightening and I stayed for maybe a couple of minutes trying to just make human contact with him. And I gave up after a couple of minutes because I was frightened. And and I had the luxury of thinking, well, the police will be here soon and they'll know what to do. And that was a real moment of realisation for me of what it is that we expect the, of the police who don't have a magic wand, who don't know any more than you and I what to do in that situation. The only difference with them, with them is that they're allowed to use force. Now I came back off, and I, off the street and I stood on the footpath with these two lovely blokes who were working at the petrol station on the corner and they said, in their beautiful Darwin way, oh, this is a bit stupid, he's going to get himself hurt. <laughs> and they walked out into the, into the street and one of them grabbed his arms and one of them grabbed his legs and he was kicking and flailing and they brought him over and they dumped him on the, on the verge, on the grass, and they sat on him. <laughs> Which was a much better solution than my touchy-touchy-feely-feely <laughs> attempts. <laughs> a little bit of, of a, con- a different kind of human contact. Um, the Darwin way and it was beautiful and it worked. And then a couple of minutes later the police turned up. <laughs> so. Okay. And look, Kate, I, I actually really want to talk about uh, the dedication in the oh, book. Yes. I really do because when I first read the dedication, which for those of you who haven't read it and if you haven't you must, you must read the book, there is no wholeness outside of our reciprocal humanity 
And I thought that was an amazing quote and I thought about it and then I had to confess, I had to Google the author mm. um, who turned out to be a, an American human rights, social justice lawyer and in many ways that dedication at the beginning of the book captured for me all the pleas for compassion and understanding and fairness in this wonderful book of yours. Thank you. And on that note, please thank Kate. And thank you, Cyril, very much. If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgee, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, and the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney yet to come. So jump on onto our website and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals. They're a really important part of our writing, reading and living community.